The Jay-wearing, spiky-haired, having, short-beard-rocking, Pastor Brent. I didn't know I had spiky hair. Do I have spiky hair? I don't know. No, I used to have spiky hair. <laughs> Compared to you, I have hair. That's, uh, that's reasonable. That's reasonable. We've got some ring here, Aaron. Um, well... Everyone, this morning we're going to receive our morning tithes and offerings. Thank you for your faithfulness, ushers, if you'll prepare yourselves. Uh, I was challenged by something I read the other day. There's uh, a pastor by the name of Vodi uh, Bakum, and uh, he said this, and I think it so closely connects to our finances. He says, let me clear, clear up something. God is not against you having things. He's against things having you. And uh, when we tithe... It's a statement saying that my material possessions, the things that I have, the, the, the things that I think that I can earn to make my own securities, God, it's in your hands. And we're giving back what's already his. He has entrusted us with so much. And right now we are able to give back in an act of uh, obedience and an act of worship through giving. So thank you for your giving. Um, God is up to something good, and I'm excited about what's, what lies ahead. So uh, this morning, let's give with joyful hearts, with expectation for what the, king and be, what the king is doing, and that we get to be about the king's business. All right, Father, thank you so much for this day and this portion of worship. While we just sang, and that was a wonderful time, right now is a time where maybe the sacrifice of worship costs a little more. There's a little more pain in the offering, but Lord, that there would be a sweet incense to you. And Lord, that we would again declare in this moment that having things is not wrong, but we do not want to be possessed by our things. And we give back with joyful hearts this morning. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give. This morning we're continuing our series, Who Do You Think You Are? And uh, I like just saying it really aggressively like that. It hopefully will shock you away. Is everybody awake this morning with me? Thank you, my good man. We got an awesome stage crew. Thank you so much, Jeff. So smooth compared to last Sunday. That was nice. Um, well, it, it is, uh, we're just continuing the series. In 2016, a man, a 70-year-old man walked into a bank in Kansas and uh, he didn't go in with the intent of depositing a check. He didn't go in with the intent of opening a loan, anything like that. He went in to rob the place, this 70-year-old man. And he, but the, thing about, the interesting thing about him robbing the place was, he was his goal wasn't to be like the next Billy the Kid, or Billy the Octogenarian almost. He, was, he wasn't looking to be like the next great bank robber. He wasn't looking, looking to come, become wealthy through this. Do you know what the actual reason he robbed the bank was? Was he wanted to get arrested. And he wanted to be sent to prison. 
so that he could get away from his wife. That was his goal when he was arrested. He's like, take me to prison. Take me away from my wife. And uh, it's an interesting story because the judge, you know, they, they had the sentencing and everything. And the sentence that he received from the judge, some might consider cruel and unusual because he was sentenced to house arrest. Did the punishment fit the crime? Uh, it's a big point of debate, though, in our justice system is how much of a sentencing should be towards the punitive, you know, punishing someone for their crime. There's a big debate going on here. We're punishing the person for what they did. And the other side that says we need to rehabilitate that individual if possible. We are trying to get them not, you know, that they don't just throw their life away and we're trying to rehabilitate them. And there's this line about like, where do we draw it on, on where we're punishing them versus we're trying to rehabilitate them. And, and so there's an interesting discussion going on about what people deserve. And, uh, and, and what people, uh, what, what that looks like. And so we're going to go back to our source verse we started with last week. So if you have your Bibles with me, open them to the book of First Peter chapter 2. Um, did Pastor Ty bring us in on, on the Bible app? I, I was not uh, up here. We all good on the Bible app? Awesome. All right. So follow along with me on the Bible app if you've got it. Chapter 2, starting in verse 9. It says this, But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests. A holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for He called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once, you had no identity as a people, but now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and as foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Wow. Wow. So Peter, again, telling us who we are. Who do you think we are, you are? We're talking about our spiritual identity. And, uh, and, and here Peter talks about, he says, you are receivers of mercy. He said, once you, you, you uh, had no identity as people. As people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you've received God's mercy. Now, mercy in the justice system is a profound act. When someone says, I don't seek to press charges against the person that hurt me. The person that wronged me, the person that wounded me, the person that invaded me. I, I choose to not seek my vengeance. Um, I, I choose to not seek my pound of flesh. And it's interesting, in Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, right, he says the, the quality of mercy is not strained, which means that, that mercy has a, such a value that you don't have to strain it, its quality is there, you aren't stretching it. Mercy is a wonderful and incredible thing, that, that, how do you measure that? And so, to see that in the, in the justice system is an incredible thing when someone says, I'm not going to uh, pursue justice for myself, but there's something that we need to understand here, that mercy in and of itself cannot save a person from justice, did you know that? That someone can do a crime against you and you can say, I'm not going to press charges. And yet that person is still at, the, at the, the whim or the desire of the state that wants to seek a conviction. That they're still, the perpetrator of the crime is still liable for the crime that they committed. And so, um, just as God is a just God, and he in the same way must deal with evil and he must deal with sin. Though he is merciful, God still must exact his judgment and his wrath upon sin and upon evil. So God's mercy is wonderful, but it actually requires something more. 
Uh, Pastor Tabati Anabwile, he's a pastor on the East Coast in Washington, D.C., he said, if we mitigate God's wrath, then we minimize man's need for the gospel. See, sometimes we like to say God is merciful, and thus we tamp down the wrath of God. We say, oh, it's okay, it's okay. He's just, he's not that mad. (laughs) God's wrath, it burns against sin. It burns against evil. He's a perfect God. And so we can't mitigate God's wrath because it's minimizing our need for the gospel. So what is it then beyond mercy that must occur? What is it in the gospel that has to occur beyond just God feeling merciful feelings towards us? Well, let's turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is a great place to get a fuller understanding of what's going on here and what God is up to. Ephesians 2 says, starting in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were uh, nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all in sin, am I right? We were all following this path, and it says that we were children of wrath, that we were on this journey with the rest of mankind. We were going towards our destruction, but I love what verse 4 says. It says, but God. Everybody say, but God. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How? By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Next verse it says... For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the second time he says this. It is by grace we've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wow. So it's important we get an understanding of what these different nouns are, what these different things are we're talking about in Scripture here. So we've talked about mercy. Mercy is the engine that moves the heart of God to save us. God saw us and he had mercy on him and it moved him to save us. That's the engine that got us going. But then it talks about grace. And grace is the actual power of God to actually act on that mercy. It's like having an empathetic heart. I can empathize with someone that's in a bad situation, but it takes an action to actually go and do something about that situation, right? Someone can look at some situation with mercy and say, oh, I feel bad for that situation. I want to help you, but they need to have the power to actually intervene and do it. In the same way with the justice system, if someone says, I don't want to press charges for for you uh, murdering this loved one of mine. I choose to love and forgive. The justice system could say, that's a really nice sentiment. They still murdered someone. We are going to come down with justice on them. But the the power of grace is to say, and I hold the power of being able to, to, to wash away the entire sentencing that would be death for you. And that's what this grace is. This grace is the power of God to actually act on his mercy. So last week we talked about our spiritual identity as, as being citizens of the kingdom of God. We are, what we just read in Second Peter, we are royal priests. We are a holy nation. We have been set apart. But this week we are understanding our identity as receivers of mercy. My identity is a receiver of mercy. Your identity as a follower of Christ is someone who is a receiver of mercy. But we receive it by grace. 
through faith. And this grace that God gives us is scandalous. Grace is scandalous. You see, we have a really nice advantage. We are living 2,000 years separated from the cross. We can look back with such clarity and say, Jesus died, he forgave us. Look at the reality we live in. And, and for literally generations, there have been followers of Christ and we have inherited that and that wonderful thing. And we read these stories, we read these texts. For some of us, perhaps we've read it hundreds of times. How many of us have read that Second Peter passage? Maybe hundreds of times. How many of us have read that Ephesians passage? Maybe hundreds of times. And, 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 and it's a huge blessing, but there is a danger to it. You see, we can take for granted and become callous to the actual scandal of what's happening here. Jesus is trying to express to people what this mercy and this grace of God really is and how, how just astronomical it is. And so he, he does it by telling them stories. They're called parables. And he breaks down a parable to the people as he was trying to explain God's scandalous grace to them in, in Matthew chapter 20. If you want to jump over to Matthew 20 with me. In Matthew 20... Starting in verse 1, Jesus says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. So far, everything's pretty normal in our story. A guy needs some workers. He goes to Home Depot, finds some guys that are looking for work, takes them out to his vineyard, puts them to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and he saw some people standing doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon, and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. And at five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again, and he saw more people standing around, and he asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the workers, the last workers, first. And when those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they would assume they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered them, one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you, isn't it? Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. This story has always bugged me. And if it doesn't bug you, something's wrong with you. Because I always put myself in the first hired group when I read that story. I read that story and I can't imagine working all day long in the blazing sun. My hands are blistered. My, my feet are blistered in these boots. Um, I'm sunburned. I'm exhausted. I'm dirty. I'm covered in mud. I, my allergies are flaring up. I need my Allegra. It's been a long day. I'm just exhausted. And someone shows up and they work for an hour. They're out there, they barely step into the field and like the, the horn blows and like, everybody, we're heading home. And they go and they get a full day's wage. I would be ticked. <laughs> the story, though, is, 
It's fascinating. Jesus tells a story and he says it's not, this isn't an example about the lack of equitable pay scale in the workplace. It's not a story about fair compensation packages that should be out there. This is a story about the outrageous generosity of the vineyard owner. You see, he paid all the people who had been out there exactly what he had agreed to pay the people that had been out there. The, the, the generosity was when he came to the people that had been out there for such a short amount of time, the undeserving, and he gave them more than they deserved. And he says, isn't it my generosity? See, this story is about the generosity of that landowner, not about when shouldn't we all just get a little bit more or whatever it might be. So the, the absurdity is in the generosity by paying those seeming to be less deserving the same wage. And this was spoken to people who felt like they were the most worthy of God's love. When Jesus told this story, these were people that were going, uh, I'm not saying we could necessarily earn our way to heaven, but if we could, I would probably be at the top of the list. I'm saying if God's handing out grace, I probably need a smaller portion because I'm right there. Just need a tipping point. And they're hearing this story and it's audacious. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. This, this story is, is scandalous to them to hear that I have been doing this all my life. Some people had, had withheld so many things from their life. They had fasted. They had prayed in the city streets. They had given alms to the poor. They'd done all these massive demonstrations. And now you're telling me this guy who, who is a tax collector that, that scams people for money. He's basically running a scam. Gets the same exact result as I do. And Jesus says, I can't even guarantee you that good a result for you. Where's your faith? Whoa. It's scandalous. See, God's grace extends to the most backwards, the most lost, the most undeserving of sinners. The one that beats their chest and says, God, have mercy on me. I don't deserve any of it. That recognizes their own lostness. And it bothers people. You say, I, I don't understand. I'm, I'm the one that doesn't cheat on my taxes. I'm the one who doesn't go out and live wildly on Friday nights. I'm the one who guards what I put in front of my eyes. I do all the things right. And yet God offers the same exact grace to those who have never lived with that same devotion. Never lived with the same commitment. Never lived with the same sacrifice. And, and, and how dare he? And he says, because it's my grace. There's a, there's a question that's out there that says, where does an 800 pound gorilla sit? The answer is wherever he wants to. I'm not moving him. Where does God put his grace? Wherever he wants to. It's so big, it's so great, it's so overarching. We can't, we can't say, I, I should have some sort of influence or decision. He is God. He is the one who chooses where his mercy goes and how he spends it. However he chooses. No matter what our own personal righteousness is, it's far too big a gap. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter how great your righteousness is. If you're living a, a righteous life, let me tell you, praise God. That is, a, that is a testimony in and of itself. God saved you from many difficult things. Can I tell you that, uh, that many toils, trials, and snares uh, have been avoided because of righteous living? There's, I encourage you to live a holy life. But can I tell you something? That no matter how righteously you live within your own goodness, that gap is still so far too great that we can never bridge it. I can throw a baseball maybe 75 yards, maybe. I think there's some Major League Baseball players that can throw it two times, three times that far easily, right? But if you go to the Pacific Ocean, which one of us is going to hit Japan? Japan. 
We think my righteousness is really going to get me there. It's too big a gap. We all require God's grace. And the wonderful thing about God's grace is it's immeasurable. It's immeasurable. It says in verse 7, again, look back at Ephesians 2, verse 7. It says, so that in the coming ages he might show the what? Oh, come on, church. In the coming ages he might show the what? Immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's immeasurable. The vastness of God's mercy can't be estimated. J.I. Packer says that grace means that God is moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. That's what grace is all about. You might say, Pastor Brent, that's a nice story, but you don't know my sin. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my story. I love the lyric in the song we sang at Easter. The song, what a beautiful name it is. It says, my sin was great. Your love was greater. Where, where sin uh, abounds, grace abounds all the more. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But then he goes on in the very next verse in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, he warns us. He says, that doesn't release us to sin even more. You go, oh, more sin, more grace. Well, let's make a lot of grace. That's not what he's doing. He's not giving us liberty to sin. He said, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. No, but but our receiving of this grace means that we live new resurrected lives with Christ. No longer do we live under the power and control of sin. And grace sets us free. This grace sets us free and we are free to live in liberty and free to live in wholeness. And this grace of God is something that we can't earn. We all require grace. We just talked about that, that no amount of goodness can, can, uh, can make up for what we need in grace. But also we can't earn grace. It's unearnable. Ephesians 2 again, going back to verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God as a result, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. We can't earn it. We can't hold a bake sale and buy it. We can't save enough babies from burning buildings to, to be awarded it. God doesn't go, oh, wow, that was impressive. Now, you got, now you've got my grace. Nothing we can do can earn it. All we can do is receive it through faith. And this is where our part comes in, church. You see, grace can only be received through the conduit of faith. Do you hear me? Grace can only be received through the conduit of faith. Grace is not forced upon us. Grace is not earned. It's received through faith. And this is where our part comes in. What does the Bible say about faith? How do we have that faith to receive grace? Well, here's what it says in Romans 10, 17. It says, so faith comes from hearing. That is, hearing the good news about Christ. It's about hearing the gospel. So we... Hear, and that's how faith comes, is through hearing the gospel. And so we hear the good news. And then when we hear it, though, it has to be translated into belief. Just hearing something doesn't mean anything until it's translated into belief. Mark 16, 16, Jesus says, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. So our salvation 
comes from God's mercy, expressed through His powerful grace that overcame all of our sin, all of our failure, but it can only be received through faith, through hearing the good news of the gospel, and through believing in our heart that Jesus is the Son of God who died for me, who set me free so that I could have a relationship with Him. That's the gospel all boiled down. You want want a, a gospel concentrate right there. There it is. Just add water. And the reason... It's all about God's grace and nothing we can earn, he says, is so that we can't boast and say, well, there, I did it. It's something I accomplished. There was a great uh, English theologian named John Stott, and he attended Cambridge College, uh, now Cambridge University, in uh, in the mid-1900s. And while he was there, there was a, a president of the college that they wanted to honor, so they had, they commissioned someone to come in and paint his portrait. And uh, the painter painted this beautiful portrait and the president looked at that painting and he said, uh, this, this is incredible. He said, someday when people look at this painting, they aren't going to go, who is that in that painting? They're going to say, who painted that portrait? And that's what grace is. That when people look at us, they don't go, what did you do? What did you accomplish? But they say, who did that in you? In the same way with this portrait, it's not about the, the person in the portrait, it's about the artist that created this beautiful piece, this masterpiece. In the same way, um, we can take our lives and say, this extra- extravagant, extravagant grace has been poured out over me. Not that I can boast or brag about what I accomplished, but I received this grace without anything I earned. And it's all about the King who gave me this forgiveness, who set me free. You know my story from what it used to be. I'm not saying I'm holier than thou. I'm saying there is one who is greater who set me free. And so we can point back and say, yes, look what the master did in my life. Look what he created in me. So that when people look at our lives and ask, who could do such a work? There's only one place we could point, And that is to the king. And God purposed to display his love for us by way of his mercy. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Jesus, today we thank you for your mercy that was poured out on us. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved. We can't lift a finger to earn our own goodness. Our righteousness is is filthy rags to you, but yet you saw us, you had mercy, and then you came and you died for us that we could receive grace and it would cover over all of our sins, wash them away and give us a fresh start with you. And Jesus, we thank you for that grace that has been offered to us. This morning, before we receive communion and Pastor Ty comes forward, I want to do this. If you're in this room and you've never received the grace that is freely offered to you, you have not responded in that faith saying, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for me to set me right before him and that through him I have salvation. And I want to do that today. I want to give you that opportunity. This grace is scandalous. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can think of the most vile of things. God's blood poured out for you on Calvary is more than enough to wash away every sin, every failure, everything that would separate us. And he offers it to you today. So if you've been carrying the weight of feeling like you need to earn God's favor, you need to earn his mercy, something you need to accomplish, and right now you are ready to lay that down and say, all I need is you, Jesus. I want to give you that chance. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, 
If that's you in this room and you are ready to give your heart to Jesus, maybe you have been like the prodigal son. You've been living life on your own terms and you know it's time to return to the Father. I want to invite you to raise your hand as well. So if this is your first time or you're recommitting your life to Christ, I want you to raise your hand and raise it high with me right now. Raise it high. This morning, church, repeat this prayer after me. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you died for me. You are the Son of God who took the sin of the world upon yourself. But you did not stay dead. I believe, but I believe you are the risen King, that you are alive today, and you offer grace to me. So today I receive this grace. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. I choose to follow you from this day forward. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. In just a moment, Pastor Ty is going to lead us in communion. But here's what I ask. When the team leads us in worship as we end, if our pastors, our elders, our prayer team would join us at the front of the platform, on the corners of the platform, if you either gave your life to Christ or recommitted your life, would you please go up and pray with one of these uh, members of our prayer team? They want to pray with you and they want to give you the next steps on what it means to follow Jesus. But secondly, if you need prayer for anything in your life, maybe you are walking through a dark season of the soul. Maybe you are in need of healing. Maybe you are um, in in a really place where you just need the the church to lift you up in prayer. We're going to have our prayer team up here during during worship. I encourage you to come find them, pray with them. This is going to be a time of responding to God through worship, through prayer, and through communion. Praise God. Pastor Ty. There's all these stories and 
now you're saying why I don't get to do the tithes and offerings and stuff like that. But there's all these stories throughout the Bible of people that go before God without considering his words. I can give you so many examples in my own life. This tattoo right here, it's of a fire. It's cool. I like it. The reason I got it is because when I went to Bible school, the first thing the pastor said is don't get a tattoo. Next week, what do I do? I got a tattoo. Take that, man. Got a tattoo. He's We as people are so naturally rebellious. We are so naturally looking to do things the way that we think is best, the way that best suits us. When we become, when we come before communion, God in His Word, First Corinthians chapter eleven, return to it real quick. He begins to talk to us about communion and how holy it is. He begins to give instructions to the church. In verse 17, he says this, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some to the extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you, so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, when you are not really interested, when you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. As a, role, as a result, some go hungry, while others get drunk. That's some crazy church services there. What? Don't you, don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really have to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly Pass on to what I received from the Lord Himself. On that night, He was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took a piece of bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then He broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, He took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and His people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as you drink it. For every time you this bread and drank this cup, you were announcing the Lord's death until he comes to you. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord, unworthy, is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself. Let me read that again. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have even died. But if you would examine yourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned or wronged. So my dear brothers and sisters, service we did uh, 
in Minnesota where this literally happened. We put out grapes and crackers, and by people were kind of snacking on them, and I thought it was kind of weird. By the time we got to service, there was none for communion. It was crazy. What God is telling us in this circumstance is, is the way we live with Him and with each other should affect the way that we approach communion. We see all through the Bible these times that people approach the altar of God without weighing themselves. And then it said some of them got sick, some of them even perished and died. And so the reason I put, we're doing things a little different, the reasons I put the communion cups up front is because I want you guys, when you come up to take your elements, to approach the altar in reverence. I want you really to consider your lives, consider yourselves and say, God, is there any inconsistencies in my life? God, where in my life am I doing things contrary to how you instruct? God, where in my life can I better be a living sacrifice unto you? I'm going to give us a few moments, and I just encourage you to pray, and as you feel ready, come and grab these elements, and then we'll pray together as we take them. says that when you broke your body, you did it so that we would come together and remember who you are. And I pray as we take this bread, we'd be reminded of the body that was broken so that we could come together. God, that there's no social, financial, racial, gender, there's no barriers between us and you and us and each other anymore. God, that you broke all those things. God, I thank you that you brought us together for one purpose, and that's together we can glorify in one voice I pray as we take this bread that we remember what you've done and what that's created us to be. Let's take the bread together. Said, this is my blood that 
for you as a cover of sin. God, I pray we constantly live in this duality. And where we're so bold and we're so excited proclaiming the good news of who you are and what you've done in our life. But God, we would also use that as a reminder of the reverence we should have as we live our lives. God, just as that scripture shared, we are saved by grace through you. But God, that you prepared good works for us to do in advance. God, that part of that calling is we are saved by grace and we get the privilege of doing your work. I pray as we take this blood, we be reminded, God, of what you've done in our life. God, that you have saved us, that you have cleansed us, that you have made us holy. God, I pray that we would also take these holy hands and put them to work. God, that we would live our lives out in public so that you can publicly glorify So that people that, God, even the people that we struggle with, God, the people that we may even feel like we hate sometimes would come to know you through our lives. God, that we would be surprised and maybe even sometimes offended by the people that you save and bring into our church. God, that you would go after the one. God, that you would just, as Pastor Brent said, Show scandalous grace. God, make us uncomfortable. Bring in people that we don't know what to do with, God. Make us holy. Make us more like you. God, make us a missional people. We love you. We thank you. Let us take the cup together. As the elders and staff come forward to, to pray with those that seek prayer, I also want to encourage you to pray. putting uh, our finances into something that allows us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to give uh, the good news all over the world and also to show it pragmatically to the world. In the Old Testament, in the same time that they learned how to make sacrifices for their sins, God established a way for them to make offerings of thanksgiving. This is our time to give offerings of thanksgiving as we thank God for what he's done in our life partner with him as he continues to do that all over the world. So as we sing these next song, I encourage you, come up and be prayed for, but also let's continue in worship through our giving. Amen.
Surrender. 
the one who gave it all. I'll stand, my soul, Lord, to you surrendered all. I am is yours. So what could I say? What could I do? take a few minutes of awkward silence. I'm just encourage you to take this time, fill out your connection card, and then uh, I will pray and we will be done. Church and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week, everyone.